Good morning, everyone. What a song. It's a good setup for what I want to talk about for the past two weeks. We've all been focusing on London, haven't we? <laughs> the brightest and best gathered from all over the world. And uh, it's just been spectacular, hasn't it? And when you, when you look at these athletes with their, the, you, and, and you see, you know the sacrifice they went through and, and, and the sweat labor that went into it. it it's just, it's really something. And, and then what it's all about is the type of precious metal they put around your neck. That's what they're all working for, is that gold medal. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how we keep things in perspective. I need help talking about this because I'm just a human being, walks around on feet of clay and uh, just a crooked stick. So let's ask God for help right now. Lord Jesus, it is so easy, so easy living here in these three dimensions of time and space and, 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 and all that comes at us to forget what matters most put our focus on things too limited and too linear. So help us today as we learn from you and look at your word and see a much bigger eternal picture. Thank you for everybody here. I pray, Father, that hearts will be open, not just ears, because we need your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, and I want to welcome our friends over at the venue you haven't gone to the venue. That's where Darcy and I worship here on Sunday morning. They rock the house over there. I love it there. And then our new cactus uh, location is meeting at Town Center. We welcome them. We want to talk today about a uh, trap that's easy to fall into. And even if you're a follower of Jesus, we all want to live our lives to make a difference. But this one trap is one we need to avoid. To set the stage for this, I want you to go on an airplane flight with me. Darcy and I were flying from Phoenix to Tampa, St. Pete, Florida, by way of Dallas, Texas. We switched planes in Dallas and took off. We were sitting in those nice, comfortable seats at the front of the plane because we travel a lot. It's easy to end up up there. About halfway to Florida, a man stood up. And he cased that front first-class section, to, picked out the prettiest girl to hit on. I couldn't disagree with him. <laughs> I thought he had wonderful taste. He came up next to Darcy, and he got down on one knee. <laughs> and, he, and he whispered one of those whispers that everybody can hear. Hey, beautiful lady, do you know who I am? And she turned, his face is right there bloodshot eyes, the bourbon on his breath. He said, I'm sorry, I don't recognize you. He says, I'm the great Bobby Hayes. And then she looked over at me, and I looked up from my book and said, oh, honey, he, he played wide receiver for the Cowboys back in the 70s. We've watched him play ball. Glad to be recognized, he filled in more of the resume. He says, I'm the fastest man in the world. Fastest man in the world looked like he was going to need a walker to start hitting on pretty women. <laughs> He says, I'm Bobby the Bullet Hayes. Bobby the Bullet Hayes looked more like a spent casing. <laughs> it's what happens when you have those guys spearing you with those helmets for year after year. 
He says, when I was in college, I broke the NCAA record in the 100. I was drafted by the U.S. Olympic team, and I represented us in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, and it was there that I tied the world record in the 100, and I broke the world record in the 4 by. Then you know what he did? He reached in his blazer pocket, and he took out the gold medal from the 1964 Olympics, put it right down in front of Darcy, and says, I'm Bobby the Bullet Hayes. I'm the fastest man in the world. She did what I think you're supposed to do. She took that gold medal in her hands and she looked up that faded ribbon to his sad face and said, oh, Bobby, I'm glad, we, this is a beautiful medal. I'm glad we got to meet you. Satisfied that he got what he wanted, he went through the curtain. We heard him say very clearly to people in the front row, do you know who I am? And he spent the rest of the flight introducing himself and showing his medal to everybody, the fastest man in the world. By the way, the fastest man in the world Usain Bolt, Usain Bolt beat him by 3.7 seconds this week. Now remember, back then they were running in yards. Now they're measured in meters, and meters are actually three inches longer than a yard. So he ran a shorter time and a farther distance. So it's only a moment in time, and yet he was stuck in that moment in time. Because he was, well, he had, Drank the Kool-Aid that's offered our culture. You know, Darcy and I, well, our hearts broke for Bobby Hayes. We just broke for him. We, we felt so sad for Bobby. And yet we thought, this is exactly how you end up if you pursue the goals of this world. I have a friend named Dan Bolin. Dan lives in East Texas, and he was participating in a 10K race that was being put on at Texas A&M University. Now, Dan wasn't the slowest guy in the race, but he was hoping to maybe find that guy and pace him. <laughs> he was just a kind of a middle-class guy trying to finish a 10K race. And he was stretching out there, and it, it was being staged right there in the shadow of Kyle Field, where the Aggies play football. And so he was there with a bunch of people, and they were all stretching out, getting ready, when he noticed a disturbance right over by the at the base of the stadium. And he thought somebody might be in distress because people were gathered around. He went over to see what it was, and he got over close, and he was surprised to see everybody surrounding a big industrial dumpster. And when he looked inside to see what, yeah, there was this dumpster filled with hundreds of trophies and plaques. Apparently, the athletic de department at Texas A&M was making room for a new generation of champions. And yet, as he looked at those, he thought, People work very hard for these. They sacrifice years of their life for that Kodak moment when they could hold these up. And now these are waiting for a truck to come and crush them to dust and throw them in a landfill. When that race finally started and he was padding down the road, all he could think about is how many things have I lived my life for? Are someday going to end up in heaven's dumpster? Picked up by its trucks and crushed to dust and end up in its landfill. My friends, it is easy to get off course. Most people, Christians included, have a tendency to aim their life at a future focused on success. It's the way we've been brought up. I mean, for crying out loud, we're, from the very beginning, we're graded, we're compared, we're rewarded based on our performance. 
We get report cards and paychecks that all are supposed to be reflections of how we're doing. And so it just makes sense that it would be easy to get intoxicated with this mindset that I've got to pursue success with everything about me. And yet success is a trap. It's a trap that any of us can fall into. And it's because of the way we measure success. Let me rattle off the four basic dimensions of how we measure success. Because once you see those, you understand how it works, and you see why this is a trap for fools if we're not careful. What's the number one way we measure success? Wealth. Wealth. I mean, if I asked you how we measure them, you'd probably give me the same one. Well, by the way, this is why I think people such, put such an inordinate priority on education. And, and I've seen parents, I mean, they are rabid about their kids getting this high education. In fact, and by the way, don't get me wrong, I mean, I'm, I'm an educated person, Dars, we're educated, our kids are educated. We see the cause effect between disciplining your mind and your intellect and, and, and functioning in life, we see that. But education isn't sovereign. It's just education. It's a, it's a wonderful means to a legitimate end when it's kept in balance, but when it's put up on a pedestal and worshiped, down you go. Down goes families. And why is such a priority put on that? Many times you'd find, well, of course, you follow the money. Well, they get in the best schools, and they're going to get the best jobs, and then they'll, they'll make the good money, and they'll live in a nice home, and they'll raise pretty grandkids, and, and, and say, you know, all that stuff. Wealth is one of the ways. Beauty is another way. Power is the third way we measure. And the fourth way we measure success is fame. Wealth, beauty, power, fame are the dimensions of Western success. You want to see this? Wait till Christmas time when the Christmas cards come and inside is that folded up uh, annual report. You open that up, just put these four filters in front of it and start to read. Put wealth, beauty, power, fame, and just start to read the reports many times. My son's captain of his football team. My daughter's president of the student council. My son got a full ride to Yale. My daughter graduated in her first job, the six-figure income, first number in the one. My son's engaged a girl who has lips like Angelina Jolie. By the way, don't give me, we love to hear the things about our friends' kids. Of course we do. We're interested in our friends. Except sometimes we know these families well enough to know the reason this is what they're reporting on is because this is what they're living for. This is what's most important to them. And we could be just like them. Easy, easy to get just like them. By putting so much emphasis on things that are superficial and don't matter. There was a little girl that came over to her visitor grandmother all through her childhood. And, and, she, and, and you always had to hug grandmother at the front door. And grandmother always, when she would hug her, she'd reach down and grab the pinch right here, these folds right here on the side. Say, oh, honey, watch out. It's getting a little chubby there. Watch out. Don't want to let that happen. Shouldn't be surprising this girl had an unbelievable eating disorder that just about killed her. Because somebody was putting emphasis on things that don't ultimately matter. But this is the world we live in, isn't it? It comes at us. 
But here's what we need to know. We can sabotage our greater impact on the world as well as forfeit our eternal reward when we make success the goal of our lives rather than the outcome of living a truly great life. Let me say that one again. We can sabotage our greater impact on the world as well as forfeit our eternal reward when we make success the goal of our lives rather than the outcome of living a truly great life. Because you see, when we over-prioritize wealth and beauty and power and fame, we automatically set ourselves up for a life that is self-absorbed, unnecessarily complicated, and one that can't ever be satisfied. It's just the nature of the beast that when that's what you're living for, that's what you've invited into your heart. And guess what else happens when we make that the priority of our home? We just invited sibling rivalry in the, in the door, big time. Because you got you to understand how the game is played. For instance, Bill, Bill, let's say Bill and I were salesmen at a big company. Okay? Now, obviously we want our company to thrive, but there's two ways that I win. I win when I make a big sale, and I win when Bill loses one. You see how sibling rivalry is invited in the house? That it becomes toxic and competitive. Doesn't want to bring the best out of somebody. It doesn't want to empathize with somebody's loss. It doesn't want to encourage somebody to get better unless it makes us look bad. And so that's the problem with all of this. There's nothing wrong with going for the gold if that's the moment in time you're supposed to go for it. Then it's a moment in time and you move on. It was a, we stood on the top thing and we got our accolades and then you step off of the thing and you move on. And yet when our lives are pushed, it's easy to find ourselves stuck like poor Bobby Hayes. Trying to get everybody to remember and go back to that one. When that one moment in time when we thought we actually were something. When we live our lives for the measurements of success, we need to know a couple of things. First of all, God places no value on these four measurements in the Bible. Now, this, by, by the way, don't, please don't get me wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with wealth or beauty or power or fame. Nothing, in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with them. I'm looking at a, 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 an audience, people, people listening online, that, that, that you do well. You're, you, you're financially successful. You're very easy on the eyes. Uh, when you speak up, uh, you know, the, a lot of you, are because of the way you've lived your life, people want to hear what you have to say, and, and you, you wield influence. And some of you have, have gotten uh, recognition just by your good track. There's nothing wrong with this in and of themselves, but you just got to know that God places no priority on them in the Bible. On top of that, you don't even need his help to have that kind of a life, to be a successful person. There's all kinds of people that are pursuing wealth, beauty, power, fame, and they're going to get what they're going after, and God doesn't have to weigh in on it at all. On top of that, one of the other problems of, of when we pursue these things is, is that we're most likely denying ourselves relationships and vocational opportunities that God has more picked out for us many times because the people, it doesn't have the resume. It doesn't, it doesn't have, the people don't have the pedigree that we feel is needed to be alongside of us to, to, to prop up this whole success illusion. But besides those three things, the fourth big reason why you don't want to aim your life at this is you're aiming low. You're aiming real low. There's something far better. God's Word encourages us to aim our lives at a future of true greatness, to aim our lives at a future 
of true greatness. And I want to go to a passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Look at how it starts out here. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. Him is Jesus. And kneeling before Jesus, she asked him something. And he said to her, what, what did you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. In your kingdom. Okay, now I think we need to stop for a second, hit the pause button on this passage, and set some context so you know what's going on here. Because you need to see there, this is part of a bigger drama that's happening right there in Matthew 20 and, and Matthew 19. Time-wise, the clock is ticking down on Jesus. It's just, in fact, what's the very next thing in chapter 21? The triumphal entry of Jesus, Palm Sunday. He's just a little over a week away from climbing up on the cross and hanging between heaven and earth and paying his life for our sin. All hell is about to break loose on Jesus, and he knows it's coming. And so because of that, what he's doing in these last days before that is he spends a lot of time really pouring into his disciples and teaching them things and using whatever opportunities in this coming and going to pass on the, the, the principles they need for once he's gone back into heaven and they're left in charge of planting the Christian movement. So... So if you go back to chapter 19, let me show you what happened in 19 that set up this, this mother coming and making this request. In chapter 19, he was approached right in the middle of the chapter by a young man who was very well off, a very successful young man, and he was wealthy, and he came to Jesus and he asked Jesus what he had to do to, to gain eternal life. And, and in the process of asking this question, he was tipping his hand. Basically, he was, he was coming from, you know, the mindset of a person in that situation. I'm very self-sufficient. I know I can pull out my debit card and solve the bulk of my problems. I, I can push my weight around and see things happen. And so this is one thing that I think you can weigh in on. And so what do I need to do? Because I've done all this other stuff, but I think I've got what it takes. What do I need to do to get this eternal life? Well, Jesus could see right through the guy. And he knew the bigger problem of his heart. And so Jesus started rattling off some of the commandments. But he went to the second half of them. You know, the, the commandments are kind of divided into two parts. The first one's focused on our relationship with God, and the second one, relationship with each other. He says, don't, don't, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. And then he summarizes it all, and treat your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's not in the original Ten Commandments, is it? That's a summary of those four that Jesus had come up with to basically encompass all those things. In other words, it, you wouldn't want somebody committing adultery with your spouse or lying to you or misrepresenting you to somebody else or, or, or always coveting what you have and, and trying to undermine you. You wouldn't want that. So treat other people the way you would want them to treat you. And so he, he summarized all this. So this kid, this kid comes, he says, I've done all those things since my youth. But Jesus knew his heart. No, you still think this is a performance. You still think that this is about gold medals or silver medals or bronze medals. You don't get it. And so he, he went for the jugular. He says, okay, here's what you do. Sell all you have. Give that money to the poor and come follow me and you'll have unbelievable rewards in heaven. In fact, let's read it right from the scripture. 
He says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. And when the young, look what, when he heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, by the way, let's make sure we're not reading something in it. This is not an overarching principle to all people of means. He's not saying that everybody that has means should sell it. He was talking to this specific guy about his specific problem. And he knew what the problem was, and, and this guy went away. He felt bad about it. Well, then Peter follows up with this one. And Peter pointed out to Jesus that the disciples had indeed done the very thing that Jesus suggested this rich young man do. Look at Matthew 19, verse 27 and following. The exchange went something like this. Then Peter said in reply, well, we see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brother or sister or father or mother or children or lands, for, not, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So it is this backdrop that prompted the mother of James and John to approach Jesus. That's why she made this request in the middle of chapter 20. By the way, if you look in your Bible, what's right before verse 20 in chapter 20? Jesus spends a couple verses. He basically says, look, here's what's coming down, guys. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be served up to the authorities there. They're going to scourge me, and they're going to crucify me. I mean, he just flipped the, the card straight up. And then she approaches him with this. So basically, in the middle of this incredible time in Jesus' life, everybody around him doesn't seem to get the big picture. The rich young man thinks he can do it with his own power. Peter thinks, well, we've done it, so what's in it for us now? And Jesus has his mother come. And, and now, now, when he responds back to her, interesting, he doesn't really respond back to her. He responds back to the boys. Because it's, it's apparent that either they put her up to this, or like, uh, you know, a mother saying, I'm going to go and try and get preferential treatment for my boys. There's going to be 12 thrones there. I want them to have the wealth, beauty, power, fame position on the immediate left and right of the creator of the world. So she comes up. But he goes to the boys. He says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, we are able. And he said, well, you will drink my cup. And by the way, the, drinking the cup in the Bible is talking about a cup of suffering. That's what it always referred to. He says, you will drink my cup. But it's to sit on my right or my left. That's not mine to grant. It's not my call. But it's for those for whom it has been prepared for by my Father. Okay, now what happens? The other ten find out what's going on. They figure out that these guys brought their mother out to get preferential treatment. And they're all upset about it. Maybe one thing they're thinking is, why didn't we think of this? Our mother could have anyway... So when they heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them together. He finally cuts through all this white noise and cuts to the, cuts to the quick. And this is what this is all about. And he says, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, they, they, none of them got it. 
And he was saying, look, look, here's what this is all about. This is about love. This is about serving. This is about others. In fact, with that in mind, I would like to kind of offer you a definition of true greatness. And this true greatness is basically a composite of different things that Jesus said in weighing in. I love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. So he talked about in Matthew 22 and so forth. So, so here's, let, let's try this out for, for a definition. I believe true greatness defined by the Bible is a passionate love for Jesus Christ that shows itself in an unquenchable love and concern for others. A passionate love for Jesus that shows itself in an unquenchable love and concern for others. In fact, the litmus test that we have truly gotten the gospel, that we truly have the heart of Christ, the transformed heart of Christ, is not that we went forward or we marked down in our Bible and we prayed a prayer. I mean, those are all important things. It's that it's transformed us and suddenly we have a tender heart towards the people around us. We are an asset and an ally to anybody that crossed our path. That's how we know it. So we have a passionate love for Jesus Christ. Now, why is it so easy to get drawn to, to living our lives for superficial and shallow rewards in spite of the fact that Jesus, that we gave our heart to Jesus? Well, it's easy because it's easy to live for time rather than eternity because we're stuck in time for now. We, we, we live for here rather than there, for now rather than then, for earth rather than heaven. And this causes us, this tends to get us to pursue perfectly legitimate things out of balance. I talked about education, how important that is, unless you pursue it out of balance. How about comfort and ease, another byproduct of living a successful life? And yet, the, 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 when, I, when I listen to to uh, some Christians and the way they talk about their life. In fact, our kids were going on a, a missions trip and, 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 and the parents were all praying that, and, and, and they, they, they all prayed, Lord, that, that none of the kids get sick and that they get through all the customs just right and they don't get bite and on and on and there are no animals get them and there are no mosquitoes bite them and, and that they get you know, on and on and on the way home. Our son Colt said, why did we even do this tonight? What was the point of this? we're not going on a trip to Disneyland. We're going to Africa to help people. There's dangerous animals there. Why don't we just trust God to just let happen? You know, he can take care of us. And yet we, many times we pray in the comfort, and that causes us many times to hold back on really serving God and serving the needs of others because it's going to cost us. You're going to not only get out of your comfort zone today, you might have to get out of your comfort zone for the rest of your life. But let's not forget Comfort is when we get to heaven. This is earth. That's there. And we get it then. It, it, it causes us to get up every morning and just pop that poison pill of comparison and just swallow it day in and day out. The success lie, the success illusion, the success Kool-Aid, it's all about swallowing the poison pill of comparison. And yet you can't ever win that one. And then something comes along that just cuts through it all sobers the world over in an instant and reminds us of what really matters. Like the attack on the World Trade Center. I could go around this room, point to every one of you and say, where were you when, when the planes hit the towers? And you could tell me exactly where you were and what you did next. It's one of those focal points of a generation, isn't it? Those towers at South Manhattan were chosen for a reason as a target, because they were monuments to what we 
strive for so much in our culture of success. They, they housed some of those very people that went to the Division I in, in, in the Ivy League schools. They had the best GPAs, and, and, and they, 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 they were the top of the line of the success heap. And, and among them were the unwashed that helped them get their work done. What was interesting, just after 9 o'clock in the morning on that Tuesday morning, when that first plane augured its way through that first tower, where they went to school, their grade point average, their net worth, the value of their watch, the label on their car, their address suddenly meant nothing. Who's who was trapped next to who's he? And yet, what's interesting is as those successful people were racing down the stairs of those twin towers for their lives, the truly great were racing up, carrying a heavy load, trying to get into that, the, the, the people left behind to rescue them. Isn't it interesting that we as a nation worship our success, but when our backs are against the wall and our rear's in a sling, it's a truly great we turn to to bail us out. And that's why when it's time to bury our dead, we mourn the loss of our successful people, but we celebrate the memory of the truly great. Those firefighters and policemen and civilians that just put all their life on the side to go in there to do what had to be done. People that we don't reward on payday very well, and yet we desperately need. It happens when we forget eternity, but it's even more than just focusing too much on right now. It's also a byproduct of forgetting the cross, isn't it? You know, someone said to Desmond Tutu, the South African religious leader, they said to him, they said, Bishop Tutu, a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. He corrected them. He says, no. It begins by taking the first step in the right direction. Because we can be spending our whole life pursuing, 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 and get to the end of it and look back. We were off course from the beginning. That's why it's like barking up the wrong tree. That's a term. It's talking about a, a, an animal, a dog, that has thought they've treed the animal that they're trying to get, and the thing's long since escaped and gotten away, and they're just crazy barking, and they're not even in the tree. And we can hap that can happen to all of us, can it? We need to maintain an eternal perspective that is framed within the sacrificial work of Jesus that he did for us on the cross. We need to recognize that every one of us here, every one of those people we watch participate in those games in London, and the people in the stands watching them all over the world, every one of us were born with a dilemma that we can't solve no matter how successful we are, and that is none of us can measure up to the standard needed for us to get into heaven and have eternal life. But we have a God that although he's a holy, righteous God, that can judge sin for what it is. He also is a loving God. And he didn't want us to have to pay the price for the sin because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That we'd be separated from forever. And he knew the only way that we could be saved is a price had to be paid by someone that didn't have their own price to pay. 
And so the perfect son of God, who had no sin, came down. And he took all your sin and my sin on himself. And, and he went up to that cross, and, he, and, he, and they, broke, they, they, they tore open his flesh, and he, he poured out his blood to pay the price that you and I deserve for our sin, so that we wouldn't have to. And that we could have eternal life through faith in that work of him on the cross. And be set free from our sin. And have that gift that he talked about, that eternal life. That is the gospel. And we cannot forget the gospel. There's some wonderful scripture on this. Let me read the, these to, for you. Uh, because, by the way, I'm going to read these from the New Living Translation. Now, this isn't the living uh, uh, paraphrase. A paraphrase is somebody took the English Bible and they just kind of kind of updated it in their modern idiom. These, this is a translation where some real brilliant scholars took the original documents, the original languages, and they rendered it in the language that we tend to, the idiom we tend to speak in today. Listen to this in Colossians chapter 1. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. And he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you, who were once far off from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Because even though we've been saved, it's so easy once again to get back into those old thinking habits. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. Paul the Apostle came down to the end of his life. He knew it was over. And he's writing to his friend Timothy, a young understudy of his. And listen to his epitaph and how his epitaph captures this whole priority of never forgetting the work of Christ on the cross through the gospel and therefore living our lives with heaven in mind and eternity, uh, eternal backdrop there. He says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the, price is not, the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. God wants to put his, his medal on you. The thing, but he says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Can you imagine one of those races we saw this week and they take, the, like the guy from South Africa that had the prosthetic legs coming in last there and they give him the medal? I'm sorry, I know that this guy's handicapped and it's a great, but that's not how this game's played. We just don't do it that way. And God says, I look through a different lens. I look through a different lens. And in the process, he can help us have that lens. You know, the story goes that uh, 
there was a young man who was raised right. He went into sales. He sold high-end items, so the commissions were pretty good, and he, he started nailing early on. I mean, he, he was making some pretty good coin. And so he decided to give himself a well-deserved present. Bought himself a Jaguar, brand-new Jaguar. Listen, Jaguar is a wonderful car. Ladies, you just got to deal with us. Us men in our cars, we love the cars. Jaguars are great. He had a great Jaguar. He had to make some calls in a busy city, and he thought, boy, if I go out there with the cabbies and the tourists, they're crazy, and I don't want to, I'm going to, he was going from point A to point B through the back parts of town, through the, through, through, through the, the project areas where not many cars were. He figured he'd be safer there, and he was coming down these high-rise apartments, and he was driving down through there, and there was a row of cars here. As he was coming down, he felt something thump against his car. He hit the brakes, and he came out, and looked, and there was a gash j just in the, his, his side door. He looked back several, several yards back there was a brick, and, and then he came down, and, and, and to look, and then in between the cars, there was a little boy there, like an eight, nine-year-old boy, and he, what, what are you doing? What, what do you think? You, what, you threw a brick at my car. Look what you did, and the kid's so scared. He said, I'm so sorry. So I was pushing my brother. He, he's in a, he can't walk. He's in a wheelchair, and we hit a rut, and it fell over. He's on the hot pavement, and I couldn't pick him up. I've been calling for people to help me and I couldn't, and then I saw your car, and, I, and so I just tried to get your attention, and I threw a brick at you. And the guy said, what are you talking about? And he came around and looked, and poor, there's this poor child, and he righted up the thing, and he put the boy in there, and, 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 and his little brother, I'm so sorry about this. I'm so, hey, thanks for help. And then he started pushing his brother away. And that young man looked at them. He looked back at that gash in his car. He had been calculating what it would cost to get it fixed, but he was raised right. He looked at it, he decided, I'm going to leave that right where it is. I'm not going to repair this. Because if I'm going through life so self-absorbed on me that I can't see the needs of somebody that's desperately right in front of me, and the only way God can get atten my attention is throw a brick at me, I am too about me. I need help. Any of us could fall into this thing. We need that true greatness, that passionate love for Jesus Christ that shows itself in unquenchable love and concern for others that happens when we are let the grace of God transform us, not just save us, but redefine our heart. And we look out through those eyes that Jesus talked about. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This attitude of true greatness is easier to maintain when we embrace four wonderful qualities of God's gracious heart. Let me show you what these are. We're going to land the plane here pretty fast. There are four wonderful qualities of a transformed heart. First one is a humble heart. A humble heart. That's a reverence for God and a respect for others. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. A second quality of a grace-transformed heart is a grateful heart. It's an appreciation for what you've been given and who has given it to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Besides a humble heart and a grateful heart, a third quality is a generous heart. Give, it says in Luke 6, 38. Give, and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. But besides 
a humble heart, a grateful heart, a generous heart. The fourth wonderful quality of a grace-transformed heart is a servant's heart. In the end of Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is talking about in the, in the great judgment, he says that, that he says there's, you, I was naked and you gave me clothing and, and I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty, you gave me water. I was sick and, and you gave me medicine. I was in prison, you visited me. And he said, when did we ever do that to you? He said, when you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. And so he wants his heart that he shows towards us to be the heart that we showed towards others. And these qualities are the living, breathing, quantifiable evidences of the transforming work of God's grace in our heart. Listen, it is so easy for people to come Sunday after Sunday, sing the praises of God, learn all the stuff, memorize the scripture, and still not get the message. It can happen to any of us. And, and there's a great delusion that happens among many Christians that think, I can, I, I've memorized many scriptures, and I can defend myself apologetically, and, 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 and I have a biblical worldview. Listen, the Bible does not say thy word have I hid in my head. It says it's hidden in my heart, and the way we know it's in our heart is it comes out in the way we treat other people, especially the people closest to us. And when we live a life of true greatness, we automatically set ourselves up to better answer the three biggest questions in life. And what are those huge questions? Well, the benefits of a transformed heart help us answer the question, what is my mission in life going to be? In other words, what am I going to do with what God has given me to work with? The cool thing about living a truly great life is that you automatically are going to bring your A game to everything because you're others-oriented. The marketplace is hungry for these kind of people. You will always have a job because the marketplace is hungry for people who aren't about themselves. They care about the company and the reputation of the company and the customers and the, and the quality of the product they're given and backing it up. They can be trusted with the company's money. And so anybody would, would think, well, you know, if I'm focused on heaven and, 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 and the gospel got me, then I'm, I'm going to be mediocre sports. How could you say that? If, if God wants me to be focused on other people, if I'm playing on a football team, I want to bring my best game to that thing because I've got a team here representing me. I've got coaches that have sacrificed and worked hard for me. I come to work. I come to school. We give our best shot there because that's the representative of how we care for others and love God. And the cool thing, too, is if you've been raised for true, if, if, you're, if you're living your life through greatness, if, if you're well rewarded on payday, you tend to hold it in open hands instead of a, have a, the Vulcan squeeze on it. And it also helps you if you're called to a job that doesn't necessarily pay well, but it's what God called you to. Unfortunately, in the success lie that goes around in the worlds that we live in, it's real easy for people to get off course. There was a couple that sat center stage in a church and heard about the, God, the gospel and the grace of God. Their son went off to a high-end university in Southern California, paid a very expensive education, but partway through his thing, he said, I need to redirect on my, on my major because I figured out what I'm on earth for. And of course, they were glad that he finally figured it out. And, and he said, Mom, Dad, I'm going to be a fourth-grade teacher. I've got a gift. I'm going to teach kids fourth grade. The implosion was immediate. The father says, you mean to tell me I put out all this money for this high-end education and you're going to throw it away being a fourth grade teacher? 
Mother said, you cannot attract a decent woman on a fourth grade teacher's pay. You can't put granite countertops on your kitchen with a fourth grade teacher's pay. Right out of the mouths of people that heard the gospel every Sunday and didn't pay attention. They were just chugging the Kool-Aid of this culture. Let me ask you, how important was your fourth grade teacher? How important was all your teachers, all your coaches, all those people? They all played great. They, part, they, they played the road, just helped weave this tapestry of our life. How could we belittle something like that? What a glorious, wonderful calling. But if the success lie is center stage on us, then of course it doesn't measure up. I'm sorry, but just that's not a gold medal type of vocation. Not only does it tell us what our mission life is going to be, who our mate's going to be. It, 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 being truly great, having this truly great attitude of passion and love for Jesus and, and, and an unquenchable love and concern for others, it helps us answer the big question of who our mate's going to be. Because you know what? Truly great people tend to fall in love and marry truly great people. There's an old saying, you're either doubled or halved on your wedding day. I'm telling you, it's true. It is true. <laughs> Truly great people quadruple each other. Second, they say, I do. Truly great people get over stuff faster. They just get over junk faster. They don't go around carrying chips on their shoulder. Why? Because they recognize they're walking on feet of clay themselves. They're humble people because they realize, are you kidding me? Left to my own devices? I'm as big an idiot as anybody out there. God save me. They get over stuff. I think they age better. What is our mission life going to be? Who is our mate going to be? And fourth, thirdly, who's our master going to be? Who's our master going to be? A truly great life, a commitment to live what Jesus talked about there at the end of Matthew 20, where the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. What's interesting is it helps us answer this question because whether you are mastered is not up for debate. Everybody here is going to be mastered. It's a foregone conclusion. The only question is by whom? Bob Dylan, in his album Slow Train Coming, he had a song that had lyrics that went something like this. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yeah, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And so since that's a foregone conclusion, why don't we serve the Lord? C.S. Lewis put it this way. You know, if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you get neither. Darcy and I were in Amsterdam, invited there by the Billy Graham Association. We were one of about 20,000 itinerant ministers that were invited to a gathering where we all kind of exchange ideas, cross-pollinate ideas. And I'm an itinerant speaker, meaning I travel and I speak. Because for some reason, God doesn't trust me with a church much longer than a weekend. That's it. That's all I get. And so, so I have to kind of keep moving. And so we were all over there. 
and the bulk of the people were from kind of third world countries, but there were some of us Western folks there, and, and they had the plenary sessions, you know, and then they would break up into small, smaller sessions, and, and we decided to kind of divide and conquer. She was going to go to one that's kind of on the, the organizational side of ministry, and I went to one on prayer. And so I get into this prayer uh, gathering, and it was like a thousand people in it, and I was sitting in the very back by myself in a row by myself, and the guy talked about the priority of prayer, and then at the end for applications, I want you to kind of join up with somebody and just pray for one another, and so I, I, I was just sitting there, and all of a sudden, a, a little, little tiny guy came making a beeline right towards me, came around this, and came right at me, and he was a little, he was a, a kind of a diminutive man with brown skin, brown eyes, and black hair, and a big smile, and he came up to me, and he's taking my hand, and he's telling me his name, uh, and, and he's, he's from Sri Lanka. He said, we'll pray together, and I've got to be honest with you, I was looking around. I was looking for someone else. But I was stuck, and we sat down there, and, <laughs> and uh, we started visiting, and he's asking about me and so forth, and asked about my family, and, and I told him, and I had a picture of them in my Bible, and he's looking, and there's Darcy, and he's writing down her name, and, and, and each one of the kids and things about him, and, and he says, okay, Tim, I'll pray for you, and, and so he starts to pray, and as soon as he started to pray, I knew, I'm in serious trouble, because one of God's favorites is talking to him right now. Because you could just tell the way he was passionately pouring out his heart that God couldn't wait to hear what he had to pray next. And he just poured, and he's, he's praying for Darcy and praying for each one of our kids by name, and he's not looking at his notes because he had his eyes clenched shut and I was looking right at him. <laughs> He'd already memorized my family's names. He's going on and on about my family, just praying like mad and praying like mad. And he finally got done. Uh, oh, okay, well, how, how can I pray for you? And I took out a little piece of paper. And, and I'm going to impersonate his voice, not to mock him or anything. It was just very uh, s sweet. What he, he said, oh, Mr. Tim, pray when I go out to take the matchless gospel to the villages that I could find a safe tree to sleep in at night. So I'm writing this stuff down, and I stop it. You sleep in trees? Yeah. Why don't you sleep in a hotel? See, that's what a foolish Westerner would say. A person with more money in his, throwaway money in his pocket than this guy sees in years. Why don't you sleep in a hotel? Oh, they don't have them where a lot of places we go. Plus, that takes a lot of money. We don't have that. Well, why don't you stay with some of the villagers? Oh, they're, you know, the, the gospel, they're antagonists to the gospel. They could, they could be punished if they would befriended me. So you sleep in trees. Yeah. I looked at me. What's a safe tree? You said safe. What's a safe tree? He said, oh, Tim. One night, I was deep asleep, and I woke up, and this vicious reptile had wrapped himself around me and was squeezing me, and I fought for my life to get away from him. A python had gotten him. It was trying to smother him and kill him before it devoured. And, and he said, ever since then, I just have a hard time sleeping soundly in the trees. <laughs> it was like God just grabbed me by the ear and took me to the woodshed. said, I got to remind you what matters, Kimmel. It is so easy to get off course, but when we remember the cross and what it means that someday we all get to go there and live forever there, it helps us with that backdrop to make sense here. Lord Jesus, I thank you for each one of these people. I thank you so much for them, and I pray, dear Lord, that in all that you call us to, that we will not get so wrapped in what's here that we forget what you've done and why you did it. And that we will live our lives in such a way that we not only remember the cross, we represent it to the people that so desperately need it. In Jesus' name.
Amen.